You're listening to Amphibicast. This week's episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by the Active Conservation Alliance. The Active Conservation Alliance is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization promoting ecosystem conservation and restoration, the sustainable use and the welfare for wildlife and human communities living in balance. With a special focus on dart frogs, many of the Alliance's efforts work towards the conservation and reintroduction of wild dendrobatids into their natural habitat. To get involved and to donate, please visit activeconservationalliance.org or follow the links in the show description. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. I hope everybody enjoyed the last few episodes about Tesoros. It was a great series, and um, there was a lot of takeaways from it. I hope you guys appreciated that. And, um, you know, moving forward, I've got some some really good hobbyist stuff coming up. Um, I've got some people lined up to talk about uh, the dark frog hobby and you know, tree frogs and whatnot. And tonight is going to be no exception. I have uh, everyone's favorite. I have Mike Novi back again. And uh, I want to give Mike a big shout out for being, I think it, he was number four uh, on the top uh, top five uh, episodes of 2022. And uh, I always love Mike having him on the show. And of course, this is going to be uh, going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about uh, Phylomedusa bicolor, uh, the giant waxy monkey tree frog, I believe it's called. And uh, the care and some of the background and whatnot and whatever else comes up. Mike and I always have some pretty colorful, <laughs> pretty colorful conversations. But um, before that, of course, everyone, the usual stuff. Thanks for the nice reviews. Five star. Always appreciate it. And if you're interested in supporting the show, a great way to do so is to become a patron on Patreon. Uh, I've got tiers as low as a dollar a month. I also have the five dollar a month tier, which will get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. So if you want to support the show, that's a great way to do so. And uh, of course, follow the link tree. It'll take you to everywhere you need to go, the Patreon page, uh, the merch store. If you want to get some T-shirts, stickers, and whatnot, I've got some pretty cool Amphibicast merchandise there as well. And you'll also find a link to Panamanian Frog Conservation. And uh, you'll also find a link, an affiliate link of mine to In-Situ Ecosystems if you want to purchase an In-Situ Ecosystems Vivarium. You'll get a 10% discount as a listener if you make a purchase through the link in the show notes. And uh, other than that, um, Mike and I have already talked for a, lo- a long time off-air and um, we had a few laughs, and tonight's going to be no exception. We're going to kind of continue that um, that mood tonight. But uh, Mike, how, how are you doing tonight? What's going on? Oh, I'm doing good. Doing really good. Uh, just uh, enjoying the the warm weather for for a change in the middle of November or not November, uh, January. But uh, yeah, that's actually what it feels like is November. Yeah, it's been pretty nice here too. We had that nasty cold snap around uh, around uh, Christmas, where mm-hmm. it was like yeah. it was like beyond cold and uh, now uh, i'm glad we actually talked off air for a while before because it was like pouring here pouring so like you know when you hear it on the roof like that's how loud it is that's how bad the rain was before but i don't know i, I guess that's, it's better that's than what snow. it's doing here actually no really okay <laughs> oh yeah it's downpouring um uh, some of the frogs were actually calling during the day and i was like something you guys don't know that there is something you guys know that i don't what's what's the deal but uh yeah yeah, har- so, har- harbingers of the the coming storm. Oh yeah, I believe them over the weatherman any day. Yeah, it's so. it's funny. You're right because I had I had some activity earlier today. I didn't really pay it much mind, and then I'm like, oh, it's it's raining out. I really should have I should have I should have heeded the call. But <laughs> I don't know. Even so, during a really heavy down, like when you have like a lot of snow, um, they feel that pressure and they just they just start lighting up. Yeah, yeah. So. Matter of fact, the last two days, um, the red eyes have just pretty much went off the charts. I mean, they've been so loud. I can hear them in the, on the top floor. So, yeah, 
it's it's it definitely jingles them up a little bit yeah well what have you been up to since we spoke last it's been um it's been quite a while since we talked on here what have you been up to project wise project wise not too many the only project i got is my home renovating right now uh, i've been tearing apart things because uh, we might be possibly having my mom moving so but other than that um i mean we got a few things that we bred we're not gonna really breed too too heavy until spring um but uh we did get some red eye clutches because we have been running really low on them um so by march or april we should have plenty of those but um that and the craspidopus we've been trying to like get those going um it's kind of a heavy surge on those because a lot of people were getting them in like i don't, I don't want to say wild caught but it's you know farm raised and they just weren't really as hot as they weren't doing as hot as they should have but uh so we figure, well, we'll just try and get, you know, boost up the breeding on those and, you know, you know, try and get a little, a little bit more of those into the hobby. Yeah. It's amazing how much they've caught on. I remember when you and I first talked about them a couple of years ago, I remember you, you know, you mentioned to me the, the substantial uh, investment that you put in to getting the, you know, getting them established and whatnot. And it's funny because that you can, I mean, a lot of people have them. I don't necessarily think that they're as popular as say like whites, tree frogs or red eyes, but you know, they're, 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 they're seen now. It's not something that I thought I would just see in a book till the end of time. I'm actually seeing them in people's collections. Yeah. The, the only problem is, is they're not as prolific as, definitely not as prolific as the whites. Uh, if that was the case, they would be everywhere. Um, but you know, I mean, we're, we're trying our best. I mean, we got, uh, so far we're up to four bloodlines now. Um, so that's actually working out in our favor so we're not going to have any inbreeding on them thank god but uh you know um yeah we'll, we'll see how it turns out but this i think this year we're going to do really well with them we're going to kind of focus on them a little bit when you've been going to expos is there any particular frog that's been getting the lion's share of attention like like what's what's the um the most popular locale or color more for species for you now uh if i have purple red eyes um i don't have them for very long that's for sure uh which we haven't been doing too much breeding with that uh believe it or not the bubblegum pinks uh have been selling a lot um and the albinos are pretty popular right now so it's like the normal ones are still popular they always will be because let's face facts that's out of all the morphs i think the normal one is probably the prettiest but um it's also the best one to start with. You know, you don't want to start with a high-end frog if you've never done it before, that's for sure. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, other than that, though, uh, I think that white's tree frogs and cinnamon frogs, believe it or not, are kind of like the new thing. Really? I'm surprised. I, I've seen cinnamons for sale. I think um, the first time I ever think I saw them for sale, I think it was on um, Patrick Neighbors' website. Mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd ordered frogs from Patrick Neighbors like, like seven years ago now and i remember seeing them on there i was like well, i was like this, this seems pretty cool and they just i don't know like i thought about getting some but i never did how'd you how'd you end up getting a hold of them uh it was actually through somebody who got them from patrick um which was you know kind of nice because they were already established um they were kind of getting out of the hobby of you know anyways i was like you know what? i've never worked with them it's a different form of uh thrilldermia so let's let's give it a shot you know it's actually before they were called Thermodermia, I started working with them, but they just kind of reminded me of the Mossies and all that. 
But honestly, I, I, they're probably, at this moment, probably the easiest frog I have to take care of in the house. And the reason I say that is because, you know, it's the same requirements as a mossy, a lot of water in the bottom, cork bark, you know, sticking in and out of the water. And, you know, just a floating feed station. What about temps? Temps, I, well, that's the thing is, I mean, you can keep them as high as 74, 76, but anything higher than that kind of stresses my, which I think is kind of common with all the thermias. But since I have this, we, we were lucky enough to have a wine cellar in the house that we bought um, back in 2000. And uh, it doesn't get above 72 during the summer and doesn't get any lower than, you know, 60, I think 65. And they seem to flourish in that. So it, it, it turned out to be really easy. It's not like I have to put any supplement of heat on them. They don't like light. So I keep them completely dark. And I just do water changes once a month. Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> no, they're, yeah, they, I mean, yeah. and if you got them dark, you'll hear them singing all day. They sound like little birds. Yeah, I've heard that they're really vocal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every male thinks he's Elvis. <laughs> Are they are they easy to breed? They'll like they'll breed on their own, or they'll they need some kind of conditioning. No, no, they'll breed on their own. Um, like I said, any, the temperature parameter that they breed a lot seems to be around sixty eight to seventy two. Um, when it drops down to sixty five, they slow down on it a little bit, which is fine. Um, they kind of need to take a break, so it's kind of nice that it's actually seasonal in that wine cellar because, like I said, you know it gets cold during the winter, but it doesn't get really warm during the summertime. You know, so that that works in my favor. But uh, when I had them upstairs, when Dave Kaufman was over here, I mean, those things were so, so vocal that like you'd open up the cage, like after the lights are all on, pointing on them and everything, they still kept on calling. Like even in the video, when you're watching it, you can hear them calling. I think the one on my hand actually called. My quarter colleague do that at, like weird times like the... The, the 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 phylobates never shut up like they 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 just and then the epipeda they just it's they never shut up and then for anyone who'd caught the, the last couple of episodes of going back into to probably into like november i had to record down in the frog room you know for a number of reasons and they just they just they don't stop and it's like the middle of the night i'll come downstairs and the corticale the call is just it's just such a nice like mellow little chirp as opposed to like the three ring circus that I hear downstairs with the epipeda babies and the phyla babies. I don't know why I picked the, like the noisiest frog. I should have just, I should have <laughs> just stayed with, stayed with tanks, but, um, it is, yeah, it is nice when they have a nice call. I mean, what about like, like clutch size? I mean, um, I know with like some of the different frogs in the mossy flock, uh, like complex, and like there's some like temperature dependent sex ratios and whatnot. Have you, have you noticed any, any differences with, um, temperature and like the, the gender of the um, offspring? Yeah, it, it, it is temperature controlled as well. Um, I've noticed when I when I did them upstairs and I would raise them, it was somewhere around 74, 76, and I'd raise them at that temperature, the ten, all the tadpoles, that we did got, wind up male heavy. But ever since we moved them downstairs, where it's an average of, you know, throughout the year around, you know, say 68 to, 60, uh, to 72, anywhere in between there, it just seems that we raise more females. So the uh, temperature is a, a pretty big, you know, a pretty big, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
Well, they basically will, you know, change the sex, and I, I guess. So I think that's with all the thoroughdermias. You know, whether it be thoroughdermia like in asperum, cortical, bicolor, I think it's all temperature, you know, sex. Yeah, they're weird. They're like crocodilians. It's it's so unusual. It's odd because you you produce more females with them when their temperature is down, but when you do it with turtles that are from the same area, as long as the temperature is down, you produce more males. It's so strange. Yeah, I remember I remember you telling me that last time we spoke. Mm-hmm. That was that also yeah. was really interesting. Vietnamese leaf turtles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You yeah. know, I'm a, a still lot, searching for a male, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people don't realize that you can, there are species of frog that do really well in cold because I, I hear, like, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of, like, hang out on some of, like, the, the Reddit groups and stuff like that. I don't really, I don't contribute, but, um, I mean, some of it's, some of the stuff is a disaster. But, I mean, a lot of people seem to have the idea that they want to keep frogs that do better in higher temperatures, like white tree frogs, and Ceratophorus, like, you know, the Pac-Man group. But like the mossy frogs, they do so well. I mean, if your ambient temperature in your house is like down into the 60s, these things are great. They'll thrive. They they love it. I mean, I have a nice like free, freezing cold uh, section of my basement that only stays around maybe 65. And I keep my mossies like right down there, like ground level on the bottom of a rack. And they they do fine. I've had no problems with them. Yeah, because the cinnamons and the... Um... Thoroughdermia bicolor are in the same room, and they, like like you said, they just do extremely well at those temperatures. So, but then you have, like, you know, other species that they can't really maintain the metabolism at that temperature. They have to be raised up, you know, at least an 8 to 10 degree difference between night and day. So, which is primarily what we're talking about, you know, in this thread is, like, the bicolor. They're, they're like, one of them, you know. So, yeah, I, you know, let, let's get into the bicolor because I've had a couple of conversations with some different people that are either like planning on getting bicolor. I know a couple of people that have, and I mean, if anybody hasn't heard the story about my experience with one around like 90, 96, I've told the story a bunch of times, but I'm, I'm going to say it again in case anybody doesn't, hasn't heard it. Uh, the local shop that I worked in, we had a price list cause that was how you, you, you know, you did it. There was a price list. You didn't go online. And we ordered, we just picked stuff out off the, off the list and they, they sent it to us and they sent us this one frog. It, it must've been a bicolor. It didn't look like the average bicolors you'd see today because it had some red in it. In retrospect, maybe that was just an infection. You know what I mean? That might've just, cause it only lasted like two days in the shop before it, it passed away. But I remember being really impressed. I was like, this is a huge frog. I mean, this thing is enormous. I've never seen anything like it before. I mean, back in the early days, like, what was your earliest experiences with, with, with bicolor? Do you remember seeing them, like, in the 90s back then? Because you were pretty active around that time, too, right? I do, but I also remember them being extremely, ridiculously expensive for wild-caught, beat-the-hell, loaded with parasites, and had practically no nose because they would just rub them right off. Um, I remember seeing them go for, like, four or $500 each. In the nineties, I don't know if you ever came across that. I, uh, to be honest, I don't even remember if it was that expensive. I can't imagine how we would have gotten it at that at that little shop. Um, well, well, I could probably answer that for you, is because it was on its on its death's door. They knew it because back then, not saying that some of the exporters and importers are 
not just as shady, but I'm going to say like, it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. That's for damn sure. But there are, there's these exporters down there that would actually send just nothing but garbage for cheap, just to get rid of it, just to make a quick buck. And that's probably where it came into play with your, your, your pet shop, unfortunately. Um, thankfully things have cleared up a little bit where you don't see nearly as much of that anymore. Not saying that you don't have to be weary about that. If you're thinking about ordering bicolor from a, a importer exporter, say, but you know, that's probably what the case. And when you mentioned it was red on it, yeah, that was definitely an infection or a fungal infection. Yeah. I remember so, it happened. Like it almost looked like it had red eyes. Which I mean, it 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 that that's the only thing it could have been. I I could never really place it, but the more I thought about it, that's that's it. It could have. I mean, just because of the size of it, it only could have been a bicolor. I think it came in labeled as monkey frog. It didn't. We didn't get scientific names or anything like that. I mean, it was. You could call something like you know a flying sasquatch frog, and that, and whatever you got was whatever you got. So I I mean, I'm only assuming it was Phyllomedusa, but. I, I don't know if that any... just reminds me of Pleuroderma, um, where they called them ass face frogs for the longest time, because <laughs> it's got the eyes on the on the the rear end of the animal, and it looks like you know it's got a, you know eyes on its ass. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I just remember seeing them at shows, half dead in a container, and I'm just like, I, I mean, I wasn't even interested in monkey frogs because of that, and then when I actually seen a healthy one up close for the first time, like in 2000, I was like, you know what, I'm going to start working with these guys. And it, it panned out. Okay. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I got lucky with that batch of, it was like, I think a 3.2 that I originally got. And, you know, three years later, I attempted to breed them and did get them to breed successfully and all that. And, uh, was surprised how big of a clutch they laid. But, uh, again, I mean, as I've said before, I think that the, I mean, the successful times that I've done by is four times out of 10. And I think it wasn't success. I think it was still luck, but that's a certain amount, a certain amount version. Now the Peruvian one that's in the States now, uh, Chris Hasbro has actually had some great success with them and, you know, hats off to him and all of that. He's done a great job with it. Um, I attempted mine this year, but found out that the females are more into laying the eggs than the Surinams. Like they'll lay their eggs faster without the male on top of them. So I did find that out. But I mean, hopefully we have a little bit better success this year. Because I actually wanted to try that. And there's another, I want to call it the French Guiana bicolor. And because uh, I believe that's where they're from, they're not too much different from the, the the Surinams, but they're supposedly a little bit bigger. Now, these are subspecies, or they're just distinct locales, to your knowledge. Um, I want to say they're distinct locales. You know, because um, there's definitely a lot of. Uh, coloration differences and, and you know between like say the bicolor from Suriname and the bicolor from Peru you know the Peruvian are actually a lot more pretty I think in every single species that you get from Peru is a lot prettier than what you get from Suriname because um, I've gotten you know 
what's called Phalomedusa volante or the white-lined monkey frog or sharp-back monkey frog, as they also call it. Um, the sides are a lot more intense in the color. If if that makes any sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, I only ask because I'm always curious about curious about taxonomy because, I mean, f- taxonomy is such a rabbit hole, and like with so many different variations of the same species, I often wonder if there's different subspecies or if there's different. Um, uh, it's amazing how you can with with frogs especially. I mean how you can have so many different variations in the same species and you can have another species that looks exactly the same. And I'm just kind of, kind of going down that taxonomy rabbit hole just because my mind kind of goes there sometimes, but no, um, that's, that's perfectly. Yeah. I mean, it's just like tanks, you know, there's so many different types of tanks, you know, you got your yellowbacks, your, your Brazilians, your Oipox, Qataris, blah, 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 blah. It just keeps on going on. I mean, you got different types of tanks, but they're all in the same family. They're just different locales. Whereas the bicolor are the same, you know, they just have different color patterns, but they're the same species, you know, being locales. So, yeah, I, I get what you mean, though, because even the, the taxonomy names, they're actually changing those left and right. Like Phalomedusa, Tom of Turner. Now it's, is it, Pith- no, it's not Pithecopus, it's uh, Calamedusa now. Do you think there's any hybridization between the different locales in the hobby? I mean, I, they're not an overly com- common frog. I mean, it's not like Tinctorius where they're just they're everywhere. But do well, you- nobody's actually bred the bicolor like the, the Suru, uh, Suru, uh, Suriname to the Peruvian, but that might have happened with the Tom of Turnas. I don't know. I mean, there are some people that are, they get the Peruvian ones and then they put them in with their Surinams. And if there is any kind of crossbreeding, which I haven't heard of yet, but it's possible. Um, I'd be interested to see what the result would be. And when you started off with the group, how did you, like you got a group of sexed adults or it just happened that way? Oh yeah. They're full fledged wild caught adults. Um, and again, like I said, I got really lucky with them because they actually showed up healthy. Um, so I didn't have to really do too much. There wasn't any nose rub, which that really shocked me because that's the first thing that usually goes, um, that are on top of their eyes. They rub their eyes real bad, which you could usually heal that up really quick with like silver sulfidizing. Uh, usually takes about a week, week and a half before it's all cleaned up and all that. Uh, I didn't have to hit them with Batril, which was a plus because I hate using that product or that drug. Um, but other than that, th- this was before the canamycin days, which is, uh, like kind of my go-to drug anymore. Um, that's a fish medication. If you're not familiar with it, it actually works really well on a lot of things. And like, were you able to sex them by sight or it just. Like- oh yeah. Oh yeah. Females are definitely way bigger than males. You know, I, I remember you telling me once, I can't remember if it was red-eyed tree frogs, you talked about some species where you got abnormally large males that you thought were, were females. What, what was that? Again? Oh, that was the Craspidophus. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Have you ever seen anything like that with bicolor? I mean, no, it's a completely different genus, but. Believe it or not, yes, I have. Uh, the Peruvians. Um, when I got a group from Chris Hasbro, they're all juveniles, all the same size, uh, all the same age. And I wound up getting... Just by looking at them, I thought, okay, that's those are three males and one female. 
what I didn't realize is I didn't look at the head shape. The head shape is a lot, it's pretty important too to actually kind of use as a characteristic of what's a male or female. But um, I didn't pay attention to that. I just looked at the size and assumed, which that was the wrong thing to do, obviously. But um, I did wind up with a male that was, you know, trying to grab one of the other males. And I'm like, yeah, that ain't going to work. And then I looked at the head shape and said, well, maybe it will. Come to find out, he got off of her and went on another female. Well, that female that he was riding actually just laid the eggs right on the branch. Didn't wrap them or nothing. And I was like, well, at least they lay the eggs because Surinams don't pop out the eggs like that. So that was a plus. But I still had to order more to get more males. <laughs> so, yeah, I was still stuck in the same same thing. Did they take a while to become, I mean, how, like, what's the timeline in terms of you say they became kind of established? Because, I mean, like, you know, 16-year-old me in 1996, I had no perspective in terms of where these things were going to be. Honestly, I, I didn't know what the hell the thing was for like 20 years. I never thought I'd see one again. You think that they've kind of become, like, finally become established in the hobby that they're kind of like a like a readily, readily available species? Or is there just kind of like a niche group of people that gravitates towards them? No, I think they're starting to become more established. Like Chris actually has had pretty good success with breeding them again. Um, so, and we, we, again, we hope to actually have pretty good success with them this year. Um, but we'd like to have them actually more readily available, you know, captive bred in the state rather than being farm raised because, after a while, I mean, if we can get them established, then we don't need to get those. Instead of those people sending us bicolor, they can actually send us other species. And, of course, this goes with the saying, it's only a moment of time before Fish and Wildlife shuts the borders down. Because we all know that you're trying to, you know, shut down import-export. And that's not like a secret. It's kind of a known thing. So eventually that's going to happen. We won't have access to other species to work with, you know, so we can, you know, as we're selling the animals, you know, you, you obviously want to actually give people the importance, you know, give them all the information of how this animal is established in captivity because it's probably not going to exist lo too much longer in the wild, the way things are going. If that makes any sense. No, absolutely makes sense. It's, I mean, again, I, I keep, you know, comparing the old days with now as kind of apples and oranges, but... I mean, you remember back in the 80s and 90s, it's, you didn't know where the stuff, well, you, you, you knew better than, you were older than me, you would have known better than I did, but you didn't always know where all the stuff was coming from, and you had no idea how long it was going to be around for, it was going to be available again later, and nowadays things are under so much more scrutiny that, I mean, years ago, no one, no one cared about frogs, salamanders, to the extent that they do today, and... It is oh, kind of, know. oh yeah, it's, it's. It's not a salamander, it's just fish bait, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You it, know, that's, that's the thing. And, and everybody went, ew, ew, you know, and you're like, you know, there, there's kind of an importance to amphibians because they're, they were the first thing on the planet and they're the first thing to go. So when they start going, that's kind of a sign, you know, but I mean, that's just my thinking, but you know, I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I could just be just being biased, say, you know, because I love amphibians, but, you know, I kind of think it's true, though. Um, but you're right, though, is like back then, I mean, I, you know, I was just as naive of where these animals were coming from also, 
But as I was learning about them coming in, you know, then I'd learn about what their environment was and all that as much as I possibly could. And, uh, you know, people thought I was being a little bit overzealous with it, but if that was the case, I wouldn't be able to do half the things I've done, you know? So research is important. Yeah. And that was my mistake back then. I just, I, I mean, I was one of very, very few people. I, in fact, to be honest, I don't know. I had one, I had one friend who kind of had the same interest as me and I don't really know of anybody else that I knew at the time who had, you know, his, his closet decked out with tanks and different things and whatnot. Like I just, I kind of wanted, kind of wanted everything and almost had everything, but that was my big mistake in retrospect was not really investigating the natural history behind every one of these things. I mean, again, we didn't, we didn't have the internet, so it was kind of limited, but you know, once the internet came around, I was, I was still a little late to catch on. I mean, I kind of didn't keep as much once I got into like my twenties and my late teens and twenties, but it really is important to understand the fundamentals of, of an animal's natural history, because that's really going to help determine how you translate that into captive care. I mean, you and right. I, were, you and I were talking beforehand about captive care versus living as an actual wild animal in its own normal environment. I mean, they are two completely different things. I mean, obviously we're not necessarily going to replicate everything. Well, we can't repl replicate everything hundred percent in captivity. But we right. can we can create, I mean, what I kind of would call maybe like a captive equivalent, because obviously we're you know you're not, I mean unless you keep a species that's like native to your area outside and it's getting all the benefits of everything that it would normally run into then then great but it's still it's never going to be the same but you know having an idea in terms of what that animal needs based on where it comes from is is really really helpful I mean like for a while I was obsessed with like weather apps because I want I wanted to know you know, what the temperature in, in like Perth, Australia was, or like the Sonoran Desert in Mexico. And it was cool because I could find it. I'm like, wow, I'm like, I wish I had this years ago because I would have had an idea about how wrong I was actually keeping certain things. Yeah, I actually use that app too now. Um, like for new species, you know, from different parts of Central and South America, I'll actually use that app and you can find it, you know, the temperature and humidity and all that. And which, which you're right though. If this was around 20 years ago, man, we'd be, light years ahead of everything you know but uh maybe for the longest time i always thought peruvian bicolor this is a prime example since we're on the bicolor is i thought that they would have to be kept cooler because the majority of peru like as far as like the animals that come from there prefer cooler temperatures as far as the dart frogs and some of the actual tree frogs where you look it up on the weather app in the area that they were from it was blazing hot and you're like, well, crap. Okay, well, I guess, guess that that right there kind of like you know ruins that. And then again, that brings up the whole thing with microclimates. You know, so yeah, that's another thing that interests me in captivity is how. I mean, the 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 conventional thinking at the time, you know, thirty years ago, was that everything was kept the same way. Everything needed a heat lamp, or God forbid, a heat rock. <laughs> Yeah, and and all frogs had to be kept super super duper wet and super saturated, regardless of the species. And you'd you'd you know you'd, you'd cohab a fire belly toad with a green tree frog with a you know whatever, and it was it was all over the place. And there really wasn't like the the tuned in husbandry methods that we have today. I mean, what? Oh, like, exactly. Yeah, like what? Like what were some of your observations? I mean, well, I, I don't know if you've ever seen them directly in the wild. I know you've been to. Central America and you've seen wild dart frogs, but, um, I mean like during your research, like what was the, 
the culmination of that? Like, what were you able to determine about how they would live in the wild? Well, I mean, I had a whole, like, I have an encyclopedia set, okay? And I looked up Suriname, and I seen that there was cold temperatures, and there was extremely hot temperatures. And plus, there was, by the time I got interested in them, there was a little bit of info that people were like, yeah, I'm keeping them outside in the summer heat in the middle of Florida, and they're doing perfectly fine. Of course, that was in a giant cage, you know, one of those, they actually, what were they called? Reptariums? Remember those? They were like this heavy duty mesh that people would keep their, their chameleons or whatever in. Yeah. It was like a hockey net with like fine mesh. I remember those. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and the only problem with that, those things were is crickets could chew through them. That was the only problem with them. But, um, you know, as long as they didn't use the aluminum screen, because aluminum screen, you know, they they tried it a couple of times and they said, yeah, it was like a cheese grater on their hands. And I go, well, that's understandable because they're not used to rough surfaces like that, which is another reason I don't use the Exoterra waterproof vines. They will rip your bicolor's feet apart. So that's kind of important for anybody who's listening. Um may not happen initially the first week, but eventually it's going to just the, the hardest thing to heal on one of those things is their hands, like the under part of their hands. Cause they just rip it open as soon as they grip on something. Um, so, but other than that, going back to any other kind of research that I did, it was just kind of like experimental at that point. You know, I mean, I, I learned a little bit about where they were from, what their temperature requirements were, how, what their humidity requirements were. They could handle the high humidity as long as it wasn't wet. And I think that was a lot of people's downfall when they first got involved with those because they would just basically just melt them in a cage. You know, there's a lot of people that kept them like dart frogs where it was like suffocated. That was the wrong thing to do. So we kind of gradually learned it as we went. And thankfully, we figured it out. Um. But, uh, I mean, as far as a basking light, a lot of people made the mistake of putting too hot of a basking light on them. You know, one of those 200-watt red lamps they use for restaurants. Yep, I know what you're talking about. And then they'd wind up blistering on their backs and all that, and that was it for them. So... So, obviously, they're not... You're not going to want to keep them, like, say, like, Sauvagei, right? You're going to want to keep them somewhere between, like... Well, I'll I'll tell you what, you... The floor is yours, Mike. Let's just say that I want to get a bicolor. How would you advise that I set up? We'll start with an adult. How would you you recommend having an adult set up for a bicolor? Well, I mean, uh, a lot of people were against this, but I used paper towels in the bottom with a water dish. And uh, it, was, it usually is the best, best method to go with because you'd spray down the sides to loosen up where they shed. Because when they shed, it's like, Oh my God. It's like mortar on the side of the tank. Um, but, uh, cause I mean, they'll eat most of it, but some of it will kind of like, you know, as they're crawling around, it'll fall off onto the glass. But, uh, I mean, I'd clean that off every day, use the paper towel cause it was easy to change every day. Um, uh, it didn't collect a lot of bacteria really fast. Now I know a lot of people use foam mats for some of their frogs. As long as it's not wet constantly, it would probably be safer bicolor um uh another thing i would probably do is construct some kind of a pvc gym like a jungle gym 
Because if you use real wood, I have a thing against that because it collects a lot of bacteria. So you're going to have to bake the wood constantly. Hmm. Yeah, I'm picturing like a, um, I mean, I, when I was, you know, I, I did plumbing work and drain cleaning for like 15 years. So I've been around a lot of pipe. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. You just, you take like a bunch of fittings and it's almost like, um, like a, like if you were making like a coat rack or something like that, like you just took a bunch of, um, like a bunch of cross tees and like made different, you know, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like a, almost like, like a, like a fake Christmas tree. If you could, I guess anyone could visualize that. Um, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. That's perfect. Um, and you can kind of give it like almost like the, a stair effect, you know, where they can kind of crawl up the one side, go on one level. And if they want to go up to the top where it's nice and warm, they can. You know, because they will move during the daytime. They'll wake up in the middle of the day if they're cold and they feel the warmth coming from some some area of the tank. They will crawl up to it if they need to. When they get too warm, they crawl away from it. They're not as dumb as people give them that. But I will say this is uh, if you have that method, that's great. But whatever you do, don't try and tong feed them. Because they get really lazy and then they won't start crawling around. They'll just sit in the same spot. What about the size? Like, um, size tank? Yeah. I mean, for me, like, if I was going to get a bicolor, to me, it's a very, it's a visually stunning frog. I mean, it, it looks, it's an imposing looking frog. It looks like a big green gargoyle. I mean, I'd want to have a nice, um, large, you know, display type enclosure. I mean, what, like, what would a typical, like, what would an appropriately sized enclosure for one of these frogs be? I mean, as long as you're cleaning it, uh, you know, constantly, I mean, we clean our cages every day, but, you know, so I have them in 20 gallons, like two to each 20 gallons, sometimes four to each 20 gallon, but I'm cleaning it every day. And I switch the tank out into a new tank just so I can kind of sterilize anything that might have grown. Um, and even then, you know, I mean, you know, that's a good method to go with. As long as you're keeping the, the, the bottom towel clean, you wipe the, the sides, wipe you know, you even wipe the bottom. I mean, I literally, I probably should actually ha make a video of this, but I literally put them on the rim of the tank and they just basically stare at me while I'm doing it. But, you know, I'm cleaning their tank. I wet it down, like I spray the inside of it to loosen up any kind of like skin or, or fecal matter that might, you know, especially from the crickets, you know, when they're walking and walk across, you know, any kind of cricket feces and they stick that to the glass, wipe that all clean because that eventually will start growing bad bacteria. And as far as their jungle gym, um, if you're going to use that, or if you're going to use imitation wood, you know, like Universal Rock makes some really good, you know, imitation wood. Um, you can just take that out and, like, clean it with, like, well, a lot of people use bleach water. I hate bleach. Uh, I'd much rather use, like, um, chlorhexidine and then rinse it really good and then spray it down with uh, alcohol and then rinse it again. Um, but as long as you're cleaning that on a regular basis too, like the little jungle gym in, in general, you know, I mean, it's just frog 101. Keep your frogs clean, you know? Would you, you say know, that I, the biggest mess comes from the, the shed skin though? Because, I mean, I've, I've seen videos of them shedding and it's like flat out horrific. I mean, it is, it isn't, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. But it gets everywhere if they don't eat it. And you're like, ugh. You know, you're sitting there with a razor scraping it off or something like that. That's why we spray it down with water to kind of loosen it up so we can just wipe it down dry, you know. 
wipe all the residue that they may leave, you know, or if they urinate on the glass, you're wiping that off, you know, and just wipe it dry, put the towel down, put your jungle gym back in after you've cleaned that off. And, uh, you know, the jungle gym, probably like once a week, I'd clean it. You know, I mean, that's what we do. Um, we, when we switch them out with the tanks, we just clean that real quick and then, uh, make sure it's air dried and all that stuff. And then, you know, they just seem to stay a lot healthier, get less problems. Um, and I mean, other than that, I mean, it's, it's fairly simple, you know, I mean, a lot of people want to use bioactive and, and I know that I know I got crucified on the Dave Kaufman thing for this, but, uh, bioactive ain't going to work for bicolor. They just leave too much of a mess behind. You're not going to have any isopods be able to consume that much feces or the shed matter. It's just not going to happen. Um, you're going to have to change that topsoil out probably at least once every other week. Yeah, that's always my my thing. With, like any type of like. Even with my dwarf rugs, I still have to replace leaf litter. I still they 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 make a mess, and like my my pixie frog, which thankfully is is a smaller female. She's about the size of like a like a whopper junior, I guess if you could imagine that. I mean, yeah. like when when she makes a mess of any kind, it's absolutely horrific, and everything everything has to come out. I mean, there's springtails in there; they kind of pick apart. Like they'll start it, but I have to go in there and physically finish it. So correct. I, yeah. Yeah. That's a big turd. You have to be so blunt, but yeah. Yeah. That's part of the I mean, experience. My wa- my wife calls them Tootsie Rolls. So uh, yeah, and that's the other thing too, is like, you know, with it, it it I've noticed that their fecal is actually very solid, um, which is a sign of a healthy frog anyways, but you know, I mean, we're feeding them crickets. I mean, I know if you feed them roaches, it does soften the stool a little bit, which I, I imagine it could be consumed by bioactive a little bit easier, but it's still not going to take care of all of it. Um, so you do have to remove that. Well, let's just say that you had, I'm, I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here for a minute. Um, Cause obviously, you know, you're going to have people who are going to say, sure. well, I, I saw the, you know, I saw the frog at a zoo when they had it set up like this, or they had it like that. Let's just say, I mean, obviously in captivity, a big concern is, is the, you know, the, the amount of space that's usable to the animal. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, let's just say that you went like really, like really like big, like, let's just say that you went with like a four foot by two foot by four foot enclosure, like something that was like, you know, I mean, still, that's not huge, but like, you know, pretty big. Um, yeah. I mean, if you had a, like a, a larger area in there. Are they going to make use of it? Meaning, like, if you had a lot of PVC oh, yeah. purchase? Okay, okay, I got it. Yeah, they will. They will climb all over that. I mean, that will be their paradise. I mean, I mean, let's face facts. Them being in a twenty gallon now, they are captive bred, so they they kind of don't know too much better. But it is good to have a bigger environment. Um, thankfully, I have the jungle gyms in there. Um, and again, it's just PVC cut with the elbows and all that stuff. That's all that is. And uh, they can climb up and, you know, you know, utilize their hands, you know, or if they're, if they don't have that, they kind of lose that grip, you know, it's kind of like muscle memory. I mean, you gotta, you know, keep using it to keep that strength up. But, um, but if you had a big tank like that, 
Um, you definitely would want to use something like a foam bottom because they are kind of clumsy. If they slip off of it and fall to the bottom, you're going to hear a thump. Generally, they get back up and just start walking around, but I got to imagine that's got to hurt. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even think of that. I mean, like the thing is, like, like if you want to do a really big enclosure, like the, the ratio of animal to enclosure is going to be, you know, it's going to be different because I feel like um, oh, yeah. the smaller enclosure, you're going to have to be more on top of, of cleaning it. Whereas like with a much larger enclosure, um, the animal's not occupying the same amount of space at any given time. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. in that case, cause like, will they come down low to the, to the floor? Like and basically what I'm getting at is like, let's just say that you built a big tank, you built a, lots of different perches, horizontal, vertical, whatever. Um, but you wanted to do something like nice at ground level, say, you know, like a more naturalistic looking ground level. Um, I mean, would you be able to get away with that in a much bigger enclosure just because you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have the animal constantly coming into contact with it. And I know in the past we've talked about how a lot of these tree frogs really don't come down to the bottom to the substrate ever. So how would that, would that be something that could potentially work out? It could. Yeah. I mean, if you had a big environment, yes. Um, that was another thing I tried putting on Cape Dave Kaufman's video is basically if you had the environment that would sustain, you know, sustain a, a large colony of, like say isopods or springtails, like the whole bottom was crawling basically, then you might probably be able to get away with it. But you're only going to have like in that setup to permanently do it where you didn't have to touch a thing, maybe clean their perches off, and that was it. I probably would say you know once. You know, once a month, I'd still change the top layer of the actual substrate. You know, I, you know. So, I mean, with that being said, um, the other the, the other thing I would say is the substrate alone, you couldn't use just like cocoa fiber. I mean, that tends to get impacted in them, from what I understand. I mean, I've never tried it, but I've heard horror stories of they get that getting impacted in them. Same thing with long fibered sphagnum moss. Because when they grab that cricket, you got to realize when that tongue hits, I mean, I've watched them grab three crickets at once. The tongue is huge. And it sticks to everything. I've watched them rip a piece of paper towel before. You know, thankfully they didn't swallow it, but, you know. Um, but everything else, it just goes, you know, whatever goes in their mouth, they swallow it. That's where I say they are kind of dumb. Yeah, I someone. Oh, what did I see? It. You know what? I was actually talking to somebody about. He sent me a video of, or we're talking about. We were talking about frogs. This. He actually. Um. I think it's actually. Um. It was. Yeah. No, that's whatever. I, it's. I'm sorry. I'm having like a, a, a senior moment. Um. But anyway, we were talking about frogs, and my my reply to him was like, Yeah, every time I see a frog try to do something, it just embarrasses itself. And they, they really, they really kind of do. Every time a frog tries to solve a problem, it just ends up embarrassing itself and looking silly. But, um, I mean, the, the impaction thing is, like, all right, I, I personally, I have never lost a frog to an impaction, or at least that that I know that I've known. I mean, I've I have not kept thousands of frogs, I've not raised thousands of frogs, but when it comes to impaction, I hear a lot of people. Obviously, they, the first thing they point out is substrate, and you've kept many, many different species. I mean, obviously, we just talked about bicolor, but I mean, in general, do you have any thoughts about impaction, like like any substrates that you think are particularly hazardous, or maybe some you know 
myths or like what what, what do you make of the whole impaction um the whole impaction well, phenomenon there are certain frogs that are just idiots like you were saying i mean they just make bad decisions <laughs> i don't know how else to put it uh like milk frogs milk frogs are notorious for impaction when they're on moss and i mean i've had people where they were like you know hey i ordered these frogs from so-and-so you know they they died they cut it open and they're actually pulling out long strands of fiber you know that long fibered moss and I said, well, that was probably the mistake that the breeder actually made. You know, I mean, you know, milk frogs are kind of stupid. They'll swallow anything that goes in their mouth. And same thing with whites. Whites will do the same thing. You got to watch those idiots. So when it comes to like frogs of that nature, that's what I like to keep. Well, milk frogs, obviously, it's a mostly water with uh, cork bark. And then there's a floater feed station, just like the uh, cinnamon frogs we were discussing before. Except their temperature requirements are a little bit different. You know, they're a little bit warmer, obviously. But, um, you know, with the with the, all the waxies, even Savazi are no, known for doing that. Um, I would suggest not putting any kind of substrate that could fit in their mouth. Now, if it's something like sphagnomoss, like peat sphagnomoss, the ground up stuff, that I've heard little about problems. I have not heard any problems actually about peat sphagnumoth, but when it comes to cocoa husk, it seems to get, just dunk up in their system and they they wind up getting impacted. So I don't think they could pass that as fast as they could, say, the peat sphagnumoth. Yeah, I've always used. I mean, there were times when I I there were times when I used the cocoa fiber stuff for really everything, and then. I honestly use it because I stopped using cypress mulch. I found that like with cypress mulch, the size of the particles, I mean, assuming it wasn't, you don't want to put like huge jagged pieces in there, but I mean, with the exception of like the really like largest of frogs, they, they you know, they're not going to fit like a two inch wide by two inch, you know, by three inch long hunk of cypress mulch in their mouths. I mean, at least right. that was, that was my, maybe that's why I had so much luck. I don't know. I mean, God, even in the old days when I, I kept frogs on gravel, believe it or not, back in the, the mid-90s because no one really knew any better. But, um, yeah, I always I always wondered how people had so many problems with impaction. And I just, I don't know, maybe it was the way I fed. I fed differently. I was a little more careful than most people. I, I have no idea. That's probably what it was. I mean, there there's people that use straight cocoa husk, that ground-up stuff. Uh, I forget what they call it, but it's some particular name that they, they call the uh, ground up or milled cocoa husk. And um, and don't get me wrong, it's a good product to have for certain animals, but with some of the frogs like bicolor or, well, Savaji, I wouldn't suggest using because it, it just creates too much of a moist environment. Um, but even like, uh, I mean, I've had Tom of Turnas where, you know, they ate moss accidentally and it was sticking out of their butt and thankfully they passed it that far you know but uh i mean that's the last thing you want is a frog prolapsing you know that that right there sometimes it's not fixable um and even if they can't prolapse then they can't pass fecal and they wind up getting you know they wind up poisoning themselves basically with their fecal you know but um 
that seems to be a pro- big problem, like I said, with mostly milk frogs. That's the one I've heard the most with impaction. Interesting. I'm just imagining with the bicar, seeing how their tongue works and seeing it, it can actually pull up a paper towel halfway in their mouth. You know, they don't swallow it, thank God, because they can't rip it apart. But um, I could just imagine if they had like, if they hit a cricket that was on just crate, you know, straight cocoa husk, I'd probably give that frog a month. Hmm. Because there would be so much cocoa husk they'd be swallowing at the same time. Like I said, when their tongue hits, it's so big. It actually took down three crickets at a time, sometimes four. I mean, it, it all depends how close they are together. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why I, I really am against kind of substrates with bicolor. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you and I had had this conversation before about how, um, I mean, we're, we're kind of keeping arboreal frogs terrestrially and they don't come into contact with the ground. They don't come into contact with substrate the way dart frogs will, or, uh, like Ceratophorus or Pyxocephalus do. They, they don't, they don't do that. They're, you know, they're higher up off the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because we have a tank that is, you know, three feet or even like my little analogy before, three feet, four feet high. I mean, that's still not arboreal. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just four feet off the ground. That's still, I mean, at least in my opinion, terrestrial. Yeah. So I feel like maybe that could be a big obstacle for people when setting up a tank because and even if you get a decent sized tank that's like a three, like a 36 by 36, once you put substrate in it, the animal's still only like maybe a foot and a half to two feet off the ground. So of course it's going to come into contact with, with more substrate. Exactly. And the only time that I ever see the bicolor really go down is just to go soak in the water bowl. And they use it as a toilet, obviously, but, um, you know, they'll go do that or they'll go as they're hunting. Sometimes the crickets don't go in the jungle gym. So they'll just go down and they'll eat them that way. But that's why I don't tongue feed them also, because I want to make sure that they stay active. Because let's face facts. I mean, they're kind of smart in that aspect. They're like, well, if somebody's going to feed me, I don't have to move. And they'll sit on their own shed, you know, that they've been sitting on for a week. And eventually that's going to cause problems. You know, it's funny. I, I, I never really, I always knew, you know, frogs are not the, like I said, they kind of embarrass themselves when they try to solve any kind of complex, even the most simple problems. My, um, my, my white tree frog that I've had for, I've had this frog for quite some time. I had this frog for a good six years or so. And it, it, it had a little bit of a, little bit of a difficult time, um, in the early stages, but this frog is so lazy and so stupid. And I never really paid attention to it until I had spoken to you last. And we had talked about just how lazy some frogs can be. And I got it in the habit of tong feeding and it has this little, there's this little cork round and it just figured, somehow it figured out that it likes to sit in there. It sits in there all day. It comes out at night, but, um, I tong feed it and I, I'm guilty. I, I tong feed it. It's just, it avoids impaction. It's just, I know it's eating. It's easy. And I feed dubias. And if I don't tong feed it, what happens is the dubia goes into the substrate and disappears. And I find it, I, I find it six months later or whenever still alive with its head crushed for some weird reason, but it does absolutely nothing. And it, it actually, when I, when I tongue feed it, I have to be really careful because it'll eat its own hand <laughs> and its hand will be in its mouth for 
quite some time <laughs> before it kind of reset. And its brain actually needs time to reset and realize that because oh, if, if I put another dubia in there on the tongs, it's still eating its hand. So I, I, you're right. They they have the the, the propensity to become. Uh, extremely lazy. And I, I, I mean, I know people talk about enrichment and stuff like that, but I wonder if, I mean, I wonder if they really do need some sort of a, like ability to solve problems just for their own. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that makes them better hunters. Maybe it's better for them physically. I don't really know, but um, I mean, there's not much going on there to, to begin with anyway. I mean, there's a big, di- there's a big difference between looking at a white tree frog, which you know is basically like a potato with legs as opposed to like, you know, an elapid or, or a king snake. Like my king snake, I give him stuff to do because he's looking for he's looking for something to do. You know, I give him um old paper like paper towel tubes, he'll actually fold and he'll fold himself in half and lay in there. Um, you know, paper bags or stuff like that are all high to mouse and so just to give him something to do because I can tell him, you know, they, they appreciate that. But frogs Oh absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. frogs they just they I d I don't know. They they're not, um, they're not the brightest, but uh. no, no, that's, that's why I like to keep them on their toes, uh, so to speak, just by, you know, letting them hunt their own food, um, to, uh, you know, kind of get the exercise they need that they do in the wild. They're cr- constantly crawling around in the wild, looking for food, looking for something, you know, looking for a mate, whatever. Um, you know, they're always in, I think they're very inquisitive animals to begin with, but, uh, I think if you, if you if they get in that mindset where I don't have to move, I think that's their downfall. I mean, that's just my personal belief. You know, I mean, that's like with anything though. I mean, if you get something so comfortable, I mean, look at us, you know, as humans, I mean, some of us get to the point where we're so comfortable that we don't move. And then all of a sudden we, the next thing you know, we're, we're obese and we wind up with health problems and so on and so on. You know, I mean, that's kind of the way I think of like with all the animals. I mean, Technically, we're programmed to keep moving. Why wouldn't they, you know? Just like, you know, when they used to ring the dinner bell, like, back in the day. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember you know, that. So, you know, I mean, not that it was ever in my day and age or your day and age, but that was the thing that they did, and you've seen it on every, you know, old-style movie. Well, that was like a reaction, you know? I mean, okay, instantly, it's feeding time. Okay, we'll we'll use this example, like snakes. You have snakes, so every time you open that thing up, if that's the only time that you ever open it up to feed, they're going to come out at, out of the cage looking for the food, right? Yeah, or your face. That's that's usually, that's usually where they go is right for the well, not all of them, I should say, but my king snake, he's got a thing for he goes right for the face. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, if and if you have a blood python, God help you. Believe uh, believe it or not, Mike, and this is an, another an analogy that will we'll just quickly touch on, but like the difference between like an ambush predator and something that actively hunts, like my blood Python is an ambush predator. It basically just sits there. Um, you know, she's hasn't been up. She's finally getting better. She had an infection, which is like finally cleared up after like six months, but, um, she does nothing. She sits, she just sits in a pile when she wants to eat, she hammers that rat. And then that's the end of it. The king snake will go looking for it. You know what I mean? Whereas mm-hmm. like with with frogs, certain species actively hunt. They actively go looking for food. Whereas species like Ceratophorus, like the, the pixies, they'll just kind of sit there and wait. 
You know what I mean? So you have to kind of consider, I guess, consider that when you're refining your husbandry methods, because you, you, you can't like my sit and wait animals. That's all they do is they just sit there and they wait for food because that's what they do in the wild. Whereas like tree frogs, they're going to go actively hunting throughout the canopy, wherever, and, and hunt for food because it's not necessarily just going to come to them. Yeah. There are some exceptions to the tree frogs though, because craspidopus are ambush predators. Really? Um, yeah, they'll actually sit and wait. Like they'll crawl around a little, don't get me wrong, but they actually have gotten to the point where they'll sit and wait and they'll move. Like I said, they'll move around and they'll get to an area where they're comfortable. And when they're laying there, they, I mean, since they blend in so well with like lichen and all that on a branch, cause they may, they mainly like sit like, um, horizontally, you know what I mean? Like if you have them in a tank with a paper towel, they'll sit on the towel. They will not, they don't like to sit like on the glass. So when you, by seeing that kind of like behavior, I was like, what the hell is that about? I mean, they never like, even when I first got them, I was worried. Oh, these guys aren't on the glass. Are they sick? You know, no, they'd actually sit on the leaves I would put in there and they would sit there and wait for food to come to them. And once they did, they do this funny thing where they hop in place about five or six times before they lunge at the food. Like they, they do that purposely to stun the insect or something. I, I don't know what it is. It's the strangest thing. But I mean, I think there's a couple of people that actually have the video up where they you, they show them or Calcarifer or Sylvie actually hopping in place before they, they they actually just lunge towards it and grab it. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huh. the first time I ever seen it. I thought it was the funniest thing. I think it was laughing for like 20 minutes straight because I was just I couldn't believe I just seen that. And, um, then I started seeing the other ones doing the same thing to the crickets that were crawling around. And I'm like, that's just the way they act. Okay. We're on a path here. So everything that I learned from the Craspies was just through experience, you know, cause there was no info on how to take care of them, no info of what their behavior was. And I just kind of got lucky by, well, I guess it's kind of like not luck, but I, I go down there with a headlamp. I don't want to go and feed probably look like the biggest nerd in you know the city and i'll sit there and observe the animals with a red light on and even though they could see that red light they still crawl around they still hunt and they still lunge at food that's amazing i mean it's, so yeah. I, with the bicolors um i mean we talked about feeding and the behaviors but like how would you compare their like foraging or like movement compared to other species like could you compare them to like a red eye tree frog or like what for someone who's got tree frog experience, like behavior-wise with, with feeding and movement, is there anything you could compare them to that might be a little bit more common in the hobby? Well, I mean, they're not as quick as a red eye, um, but I think anything that's like a high canopy dweller is going to move a little slower because it's obviously got to be cautious because it doesn't want to slip off a branch or anything like that. But I think that what they do, like, if if I was to actually guess what a bicolor does in the wild, we'll say this, is they move around, they, they move cautiously. It's not like they're super jumpy or anything like that, like compared to, like, a, like I said, a red-eyed tree frog. But not only do they, they walk with caution, but if, as soon as they see a prey, they stop and let it come to them. And that's where I kind of consider them almost an ambush predator, but not quite all together, you know? 
Like there's geckos. I mean, they eat geckos in the wild. You know, a lot, there's a lot of people that don't know that the bicolor actually eat geckos. They've been known to walk up to like a, what are those possums called down in uh, South America? The small ones. Oh, I'm trying to think. I, I, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I have. But they've the, actually walked up to the where they have their nest, and they've seen the pinkies. They'll actually eat the pinkies of those once in a while. Um, they've found uh, small snakes inside the bellies of bicolors before. So, and on top of a wide assortment of like different types of insects, you know, of course, there's what a hundred different types of roaches or something ridiculous like that down in the in the Americas, you know, the South and Central Americas, but. Um, I mean, they eat just about anything that gets close to them that they could fit in their stomach. What about supplementation? Do you have any any specific uh, recommendations for supplementation for? Uh, I mean, different let's, meals. Oh, let's let's. I mean, let's just say that we start out with a juvenile and we work our way up to an adult. Are there any supplements like early on in life that you recommend as opposed to an adult frog, or like what? How would you supplement a frog throughout the course of its life? You're talking about the vitamin supplements. Yeah, vitamin mineral supplements. Okay. Um, now, in my experience with the with the vitamin supplements, is I've always stuck with Repcal. Uh, I've tried Repashi. It just doesn't work that great on on tree frogs. Uh, Repashi makes a, a great product for darts, but as far as the tree frogs, it just didn't seem to really. I don't know. I mean, my animals didn't really react off of it too well. But once I went back to Repcal. It was fine. Now, the way I mix the RepCal is I mix three parts of the herptivite to one part of the calcium with vitamin D3. Because I, I don't have any UV lights on top of them. Actually, now I do. So I actually had to use the uh, calcium without the vitamin D3. So I guess I could kind of step back on that. But if you're not using UV lights on them, the D3 is very essential with them. Because they are getting D3 from the sun, natural sunlight in the wild, them being that high up in the canopy. But even as even as froglets, I mean, it's always three parts vitamin, one part calcium. And with regards to the UV, what kind of is there a certain bulb you're using? Are you, you keep it on a certain time of day? Like what what's the UV yeah. that you're using? I I've, I used to use Exoterra's. Um, I kind of shied away from them for a couple of reasons, um, and I've started using this product called Vivtech. And the Vivtechs are LED UVB. And, you know, I've got one of those light meters that actually checks, you know, the intensity of the UVB as opposed to the UVA. The UVA, I'm not really concerned about. I'm more concerned about, are they getting UVB? And so far, it's been a year and a couple months, and those UVB lights are actually still working, as opposed to an Exoterra where it loses its UVB probably within three to four months. Uh, so with that being said, you know, it's not as bright. It's more compact. It's more of a spotlight. And it, it really doesn't, doesn't make the animal stress out like a bright, bright light would. If that makes any sense to you. But, you know, I do use those. And I've had, I, I think the colorations actually come out a little bit more with those bulbs, to be honest with you. But that's just my experience. You know? Yeah, I, I had Ryan back on the show. I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember which episode it was. But yeah, we, we talked about that, the, the spot bulbs. 
And he's got, I mean, don't, don't quote me on it. I think he, I think he guarantees the, the output for like two years Yes, on those bulbs, I believe. So they're, they're pretty. Save like, your receipts, people. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're pretty up there. Um, what, yeah, he, he'll honor it. And, yeah. you know, I mean, that's the nice thing is you don't have too many companies that actually honor that, you know? Um, but, um, yeah, for the most part, they're still working. They're still putting out UVB. Um, the animals aren't stressed out under it they seem to color up better i don't i don't know if, if it's just me having good luck with that um but um yeah i mean they they seem to cycle better i mean hell i got it above my tortoises my redfoot tortoises a lot of people are like yeah you got to use this heat bulb and you got to use this bright light nope that's why they're always in the hide box they hate light which if anybody's listening what good way to determine whether your turtle or tortoise likes light it's got dark eyes it likes darkness a little bit of shade so but yeah i mean as far as the intensity of the bulb that i'm using i'm using the jungle uh what are they called jungle covers and it's not like it's like equivalent to like i guess six percent uvb so it's not like your 10.0s where they can kind of burn the animal yeah i i you know uv i'm always I'm, maybe I just I'm overly cautious. Maybe it's it's just because of the the way that I've seen that you know it's like people coming out today. The UV technology is, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's pretty safe by and large. But like you know, the older there for days, a while it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other. Maybe it's just I'm I'm just kind of a little bit biased because of the way things used to be. But um, I mean, what what made you decide to use UV with with this species as opposed? Like, was there any any reason, or you just wanted to try it, or why just why just start using it? I, I like the fact. I mean, there are there are sun baskers. Uh, they are getting like you know a little bit of sun up being that high up in the canopy. Um, it's not like full intense sun. I mean, they are still getting a little bit of shade, but through the leaves, you're going to get some UVB pe- penetrating through the leaves. It's not going to be as high, but it's going to be a pretty decent amount. So, with that being said, I was like, okay, if they're canopy dwellers, they're getting hit by the sun. And a lot of UVB anyway, so I want to make sure that that's covered. And it, it has worked out really good, you know. I mean, when I first started, you know, with the bicolor back in, what was it, 2002 or something or 2001? I don't know, somewhere around there. I actually had, it was a T12 fixture. And we all know how warm and, you know, dangerous those things were at the time. But I had it about a foot above their cage. And they seemed to do really good on it, you know, considering they were wild caught. It wasn't too much of a shell shock uh, going from a different type of lighting. So that kind of made me think about it as well. What about um, humidity and ventilation? Because obviously, if you, you know, you certain species, like you try to keep them really humid, it can be a challenge. Like I, I just, I put this little humidity gauge that, that senses it, it does temperature and humidity in the air. It's, I, think it's, I bought it on Amazon for like 60 bucks. It's like my new favorite thing in the world. But I, I started, <laughs> yeah. I started checking the ambient humidity in different enclosures. And even the ones that I had partially restricted, I mean, bear in mind, it's, it's well, when we're recording this, it's like the middle of January here. So it's really, really dry downstairs because of the heat. But um, I mean, even with substrate that was still pretty damp, the ambient humidity wasn't really that high. I mean, what, what, what would you keep them at humidity wise? And like, how would you maintain that parameter? 
Well, and it's funny you mentioned that too, because I just started uh, using a product last year that was made by Zoomed that's uh, rated for a thousand watts and they call it an environmental controller. I'm going to tell you right now, I love this thing. What I have in the room is a humidifier. It's actually one of the, like during the wintertime, I run the warm mist humidifier. And then during the summertime, I run the cool mist humidifier, the ultrasonics. Um, the warm mist humidifier is obviously not an ultrasonic, but the reason I use the warm humidifier because it helps warm, warm up the room because, you know, of course it being as cold as it outside, you know, we remember like what, about two weeks ago or actually no, back, back the week before Christmas, it was five below here you know, during the day. And I wanted to make sure that I had enough heat for them to actually warm up and feel comfortable. So that, that right there helped. But this environmental controller, since it controls up to 1,000 watts, I literally have a, a radiator space heater, right? But I got it on, lo on low. I got it on one. And then I there's a dial above it that, you know, for the intensity of the heat on that level. So I run it halfway. So this way you're only using about five to 600 watts. So the humidifiers use 20 watts. And you can literally program this to where the humidity during the daytime is 65 to 70%. At nighttime, it jumps up to 85%. Now, granted, you're going to have to fill that humidifier up every day. But this controls a whole room. You know, it's it's just a 11 by 14 room. So, but I do have an oscillating fan in there to kind of keep everything a little bit more consistent as far as like the whole air movement. And it's on low, so it's not really high, but it's keeping everything at the same temperature and the same humidity throughout the entire room. And that's actually how, because the, the bicolors are upstairs with, um, Chinese box turtles, which prefer humidity and a little bit warmth. And then the red foot tortoises, cherry hoods, and hingeback. Well, actually, the hingebacks are on the colder side of the room. But since the bicolors need that air movement, but humidity, that's how I run that. Daytime temperatures, I like to keep it around, like, say, 82, 83. And then nighttime, it drops down to 77. Now, it's been consistently like this for years. And if you're able to keep Bicolor alive, because I still have one of the original ones I got back in 2005, one of the Surinams, the big female. She's all marbled out because she's just old. And, um, you know, I mean, it just seems that that system works. So... I don't know if anybody wants to actually go to that level, but yeah. I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking at the picture of this thing online, and I'd seen it before, but I, I, I never really gave it much thought. But I, I never would have definitely never, never would have thought to use it for an entire room. But I guess if you were doing like a decent sized enclosure, this would probably be. I mean, it looks it looks like a good product. I mean, light humidity and temperature. Yeah, and you can set it for day and night cycles. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool too because I I mean, I I don't know. I mean, like my the animals that I've had in my my room, my basement, I mean, I'm assuming that they're they 
kind of adapted to whatever it is because everything, you know, there's, there's a 12 hour day cycle, night cycle. And, um, you know, the heat varies according to the season, the humidity varies, but, um, hmm. are you looking at the products right now online? I, I am. Yeah. I'm just, I'm on zoom ads and like for everybody listening, I swear I'm not like plugging zoom ad. I, I just, I'm just looking at this here, but yeah, I, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm not plugging them, but that is a good product. That that thing's been running strong for a year and a couple months now because I got all that at the same token as the, the VivTech bulbs. And it's been running strong, you know. And again, you know, I mean, like if you're running your radiator heater on low with a small personal fan behind it to kind of push the air through it, you know, just on low. It doesn't have to be anything weird, you know, but... You know, it clicks on at the same time. You know, same time as that. Cause you would just use like a what do you call it? A, like a, a, a power strip. You know, and you'd have both of those come out at the same time to kind of help push that air through. And like I said, it saves a lot of grief because you're not worried about okay, is the whole room like this or is it just this this particular part of the room? And that's where I thought it worked out great, but. If you got animals that have different requirements, you probably would want to just put it on that cage in particular. Yeah, I was going to say because I've got I mean for for me to for me to do this in my space, I I don't really see it as being practical just because I've got I mean I've got I've got baseboard heat and I've got central air, so I'm I'm not going to be able to fight those two things. In fact, my in fact, my the way my whole house is set up, it's actually based around the parameters for the animal room anyway. Um, yeah, having really... yeah, if I didn't have central air, forget it. The dart frogs just would not; they wouldn't make it. But this does look like a pretty cool product. Um, I mean, okay, I, so you know, let me interrupt you real quick. Let's say that you had that four foot by two foot by four foot cage. And you wanted to control it with a humidifier, like an ultrasonic humidifier, blowing the humidity into the cage. You had a ceramic fixture and maybe a, one of those Exoterra rainforest heat pads on the bottom of the cage um, just to kind of create that ambient effect of the heat. And you had um, – it also controls the lighting too for the day and night cycle too. Um, I don't know if you've seen that on there. It controls everything, basically. I didn't think it even controls the cooling element. Zoomit made a cooling element, too. Did you see that? No. I, I mean, I can see that there's three, there's like three outlets here, and it looks like there's probes. Maybe. Is that probes? There's Yeah, there's actually six outlets on that thing. Three of them are for temperature, humidity, and what was the other one? I'm not looking at the box right off the All bat, right. so I don't remember. But, All yeah, right. it does have the probes to put into the tank. So this way you can actually get the accurate temperatures and humidity par- barriers that you need for that particular animal. That's why I really like it. Now, it, it's it's about 139 or 149 bucks. Might be able to find it for 129 on eBay or something like that. But it's worth every penny. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's really well built. I mean, I'm pretty big on controls. I like having, cons- I mean, like I, I, my favorite way to heat, honestly, is radiant heat panels and, and just, and like placement throughout the room because I found that, and I'm going to, I have an episode on heating that I'm coming up too, because I kind of, the, the heating bug got in my mind. But um, mm-hmm. I found that like even 
like where you put a certain enclosure in the room can be so it can have so much of an an effect on just controlling those temperature parameters because like if i was to put my warmer species like the ceratophorus like in that corner where i have the mosses oh forget about it they'd be like they they wouldn't last yeah because it'd be like 60 some odd degrees there Mm -hmm. but like if i have them up higher like up on a high shelf where that air kind of you know warm air kind of rises is closer to the boiler room you know it can get up to 77 78 up there just ambient and then it takes very very little to add heat to it but i mean this i'm intrigued now so this is like uh, this is this is the amphibicast challenge for anybody out there um anybody who has this product um or was curious about it this try it out i guess i don't know let me know how it goes you've got mike novi's stamp of approval so yeah, we'll I see. definitely love that thing. <laughs> yeah, because people were people were asking me. I, I posted. I mean, by the time this comes out, it's bit. It was weeks ago, but I posted something on Instagram about uh, what your frog room goals are. You know, for whatever. And someone had asked me a question, um, or someone had had made a a, a post reply that um, this person wanted to have full automation in the frog room, and I really didn't know how to reply. And this seems like. Um, now you do. <laughs> yeah, now you do. Now you do. So yeah. that's that's pretty for cool. For the lighting, I always put on separate timers, though, because I like to light the room from one side to the other. Like, it starts off on one, like the dawn, and then it ends on the other, like the like the dusk. Or, or actually, yeah, basically back and forth. So, you know, I mean, I, I've always done that with all my lighting, you know, because, you know, I'm using rooms, not just one cage. Um, though, if you are, int- if anybody's ever interested in creating a lighting effect where it starts off like dawn to dusk, uh, your best bet is to probably look up current USA with the lighting unit that they have. Um, that one actually works pretty good. It dims on and it dims off. It's got a little timer on it. It's nice. But if you need the whole enchilant where you need to control the humidity and you want to control the lighting and all that stuff now. The lighting doesn't dim off, but it turns on and off. You know, that's the only difference. And I, 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 I'm going to assume, I know the answer to this question, but activity level, I'm assuming these things are nocturnal, right? Bicolor? Uh, bicolor? Yeah. Yes. Okay. How much activity would you see them, like, engaged in after, after dark? Uh, as soon as they wake up, they start to shed every night. They'll shed every night, just like most tree frogs. Actually, probably all tree frogs I have all shed at night, but um, as soon as the lights click out. And as soon as they get done with that, they start hunting. So it's kind of like a little thing where they're just programmed to do that, I guess. But, uh, yeah, they're very active. When you click on the lights, they freeze like you don't see me. You know, it's kind of funny because they'll stop in mid-motion as they're, they're walking across the bottom or crawling up the side and then slowly put their hand on the surface. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're trying their damnness so you can't see them. And it's like, yeah, that's programmed India too. You're trying to camouflage. I get it. And they do turn a little dark at night like most tree frogs. And I think that's to absorb any kind of ambient heat and the camouflage as well. Well, um, a couple, a couple more. I mean, we're kind of running out of time, but I got a couple more questions about you, and not you. I'm sorry, <laughs> I have a million questions about you, Mike. Um, no, by color. 
Um, what are some signs that you might be doing something wrong? Because frogs generally aren't very, very forgiving. And again, my, my first experience was obviously bicolor is not particularly forgiving, e even for a frog. Like, what are some things you want to avoid? And is there any indications that the frog might give you that you're doing something wrong? Okay. Well, with bicolor, I, I mean, I guess I should kind of back up with the every night they're super, super active. There are nights where they're like, you know, I'm just going to chill out tonight and just keep sleeping or or I'll have my eyes open waiting for something to walk past me so I can swallow it and go back to sleep. Um, and that asset, or in, in that way of speaking, they're they're more laid back, I guess, than most tree frogs. So but I have had people panic and call me and ask me, you know, hey, this thing, you know, it's just staring at me at night. It's not really moving around. Well, sometimes they do that. And if it's not constantly, then you have nothing to worry about. But if it's more than like two days, three days in a row, that they're not moving then. I, and their color's a little off. They look a little thin because they're not going to the water bowl and soaking, get rehydrated. Then there's signs right there, first signs usually. Um, if they're having problems shedding, uh, chances are it's not humid enough, which, you know, the adults don't really require a you know, like huge amount of humidity, but the younger ones, which I should point this out as well. And let me make it very clear for the first two months, it's very adamant that these need to be misted twice a day, once in the morning, once at night, as long as there's still ventilation, this aids with shedding. If they do not shed, it comes like a wet suit and they can't breathe. Sooner or later, they're just going to perish. They'll actually stop eating and everything. So those are some signs to look for with bicolor. Um, if you notice that their toe pads are blood red, you're keeping them too wet. That's another mistake a lot of people do is they keep their bicolor too wet. Um, even when they're young, you want to keep them uh, moist, not wet. And... Yeah, you'll have less problems with that as well. Because once they get those feet, that's the most important part of a tree frog, I think, is those damn feet. If they get injured, if they bleed, they start, you know, hemorrhaging. They're like the hardest thing on a tree frog to heal. And uh, I, I think that's it's something that a lot of people need to know right now. If you're going to take care, take on a bicolor, you just can't keep them too wet. But you want to add the, you know, the essential humidity. You know, which you can use the foggers, but just set the foggers to where it's like, say, 65% during the day. And like I said, 85 at night. And as long as it's not constantly wet inside the cage, you should be fine. You got to allow that, that, that towel to dry out a little bit, you know. So would you say like full screen top ventilation and then you just, yes. okay. All right, so you're going to want that evaporation to happen and, and not let, let it stay stagnant. Well, again, let me back up again. I keep on pulling this pulp, pulp fiction on you. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, when they're younger, when they're out of the water, and you say you actually get a two-month-old instead of a month-old, Once you, if you get a month-old, it's very hard to keep them clean, hydrated, and not too wet for a lot of people. So I always say... People, if you're going to buy a bicolor, say Chris has them again available. He's good about it, raising them up to they're like a month and a half, two months. 
usually you're kind of out of the woods with this a little bit, but you still got to keep a little bit of humidity inside of that more so than you would the adults. By doing that, on top of the screen, you would actually put what's called um, like, well, you can use plexiglass or glass or, or you could just do what I do. Use saran wrap. You know, I mean, I'm really clumsy with glass. I guess that's why I always use saran wrap. Um, cover like, I'd say probably 70% of the cage on the top. And this way it allows ventilation to come in, allows it to dry out a little bit. Not too dry, but it allows some of that humidity to still stick around. And as they get older, I always tell people every month, just peel it back an inch. Or say 5%. So it's kind of a good rule of thumb to go with, because when I was raising up Bicor for the first time, I had to find this out the hard way. And I don't ever want to see anybody ever go through that crap. That was that was a nightmare. Um, but uh, I think that's that's probably the most important thing. Like if you're raising up a Bicor that Chris is that Chris or whoever produces uh, that's about two months old. From that point on, you'd want to do that method. Now, if it's a full fledged adult which I don't see too many people selling their adult bicar because well, they get, they get attached to them. Um, then you could do a full screen top if it's an adult. Now, mind you, like we, as we were discussing in the wintertime, when the heater comes on, it just dries everything out. I mean, hell we get nosebleeds if it's too dry. Imagine what they go through. So with that being said, that's where I would actually probably cover up about, Eh, at least half of it, but I wouldn't miss them as much when they're adults. But at least it would have some humidity in there and you would have some range of, it, it, I mean, like the average house is like 35, 40% during the wintertime as far as humidity. That's going to be too low for bicolor. So you want to hold in some of that. Yeah, that's just about what my basement slash frog room is. It was about 30, 34, 35 and it's it's funny because even in the tanks that I had, like the, the I know people will say I don't don't do 100% ventilation. Even with that, 100%, it was still only like 85%, 90. I mean, it got up to like 90 in some of the tanks, the dark frog tanks. But it's amazing, like how much the ambient humidity drops, even though a frog is like you know like my, my pixie frog, even though she's sitting in you know damp substrate the ambient humidity in that tank is not much, uh, not much lower than, um, whatever, you know what I mean? It, it's not much different from the ambient hum humidity in the room. Right. Unless yeah. I really, really like overdo it with the, with the ventilation. And then you add the heat lamp and it's, it's like, it's like almost damn near impossible to keep it, you know, dramatically different from what room temperatures without substantially restricting almost all the ventilation. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, now, there are people that have been taking on the same idea as me, is actually putting a humidifier in the room. Um, of course, a lot of them actually listen to me, too, when I was telling them about how I get nosebleeds if the air is too dry. I literally have an, uh, a humidifier in the actual, um, like, living room, you know, as we're watching TV, so my nose doesn't dry out so damn much. Is that heater blows. I mean, we got a new heater, and even though it's energy efficient, man, is this thing crank. It's awesome. But it dries it out so much in here that I have to actually run a humidifier. And when you do that, 
especially you know especially if you have allergies or anything like that when you when you have a humidifier in the room now i know we're kind of going off topic it's not a bike or it's humans we're talking about but people that actually have humidifiers in their rooms as they're you know sleeping at nighttime tend to have less respiratory problems so think of it as if you put a bicar in a cage and you got it all set up and you put a humidifier just in the room that is right there is going to help the animal itself you know along with you you know it makes sense i mean it's it's especially if you've got multiple frogs in your collection and you don't want to commit to um, just doing a fogger or just doing a mister on one enclosure. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I never did it just because, you know, with the, the basement, the basement in and of itself is, I mean, even though the ambient is still like in the, in the thirties, um, it's still a basement and it still does retain more moisture around the walls. Like if I, if I take that gauge and I go up to like the foundation wall, it it goes up, you know what I mean? Just because it's making contact with the outside. So oh yeah, absolutely. Little, you got all that condensation. Yeah, too. I'm a little gun shy with that in the basement, but I mean, I could see how it would make sense if you had a dedicated room to it. I just I don't know. Maybe that's that's just my personal stuff. I don't want it to influence anybody else, but because um, what you're yeah, saying makes basement, perfect sense. Yeah, in a basement, you you kind of have. Believe it or not, it's a little harder to keep that humidity without having your whole basement turn into a mold fest. Yeah, that was kind of what I was try, trying to yeah, say. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. Yeah, you're, you know, and you. I mean, of course, you're going to eliminate that with those on generators, but then you got to run something else in your damn house. So yeah, I I I could see where that would actually be a problem. Um, like I have ionizers in all the rooms too. I mean, I'm I'm just a nut job with this, but uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to keep down all the mold spores as well. I mean, that's that's one of the things. I mean, again, you know, when you got allergies, I got a cat that you know, I don't want the dander flying in a room, you know. Um, so if you have like a ionizer slash ozone generator, uh, there's a few of them around on the market that are really good, easy to clean, all that stuff. That it kind of eliminates that problem. So, I mean, if people want to use it in their basement and they want to still cut down on the mold, that's probably their best choice um, to add to the room if they don't mind running another electrical appliance in their room, you know. Um, uh, nice thing about all this stuff that we're talking about, it's all low energy now. It's not like it was back in the day where it used, you know, 400 watts or something ridiculous. So... But, um, yeah, I mean, as far as like a normal room though, yeah, I mean, you probably want to go that route with a, with a humidifier. I mean, overall, would you say that, I mean, I, I hate to break things down to just like simplicities, but I mean, if you were to rate bicolor beginner, intermediate, advanced expert, where would you rate it for intermediate you know, intermediate? Okay. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that they're the most delicate species to take care of. There's just the simple rules that you got to follow, um, you know, to keep them healthy, happy. And as far as breeding, well, that's that's definitely advanced because, you know, even Chris has mentioned, he says, yeah, it's it's not a piece of cake, but when it happens, it happens, you know. And, uh, you know, you got to have the right size environment to do that in. Uh, but as far as keeping them, just general husbandry, I'd say probably intermediate. You know, I mean, it's it's not it's not extremely hard, but I definitely wouldn't say 
that'd be your great first frog, you know? I mean, there's going to be a, a, a investment in, in time and obviously, you know, getting the enclosure parameters correct. Cause like, I mean, just the way I'm thinking of it, like right now at this moment, I don't have, I don't have an appropriate setup that I would feel comfortable getting one at this moment. You know what I mean? Like I would have to, I would have to kind of swap around some things to, you know, be able to get something that's warmer. And then, cause right now my, everything is, is on like dart frog mode. You know what I mean? Right, it's pretty yeah. much happy at room temperature and I don't have to worry about ventilation, uh, humidity, ambient humidity. Cause a lot of the ventilation is restricted, but, um, yeah, like I'd have to make some modifications, you know? I mean, I'm, I, I totally oh, want, yeah. I totally want one of these, but like right now, um, you know, I, my, my room is set up for, you know, one group is one group of species. That's pretty specific. Right. That's kind of yeah. like your micro environment. Exactly. Exactly. You know, not, yeah, not that, that anyone. That's kind of the way I run things in this house. Like all the glass frogs are in the one back room where it doesn't get above 74 and it, at nighttime it's like 65. Uh, and then I got the thermodermia that are in the wine cellar where it doesn't get above 70, 72. And then it drops down to like, you know, 65. And, uh, I mean, you know, and then of course the bicolor room, they're upstairs on the second level where it's like you know where you know naturally heat rises anyways and the way we run our vents for our heating during the winter time is i open all the vents downstairs in the basement and let that heat rise up rather than flood that room with a bunch of dry air you know but basically it you know with the heater in there and you know the the heat rising it does keep that room substantially warm. You know, I mean, it's, it's nice, but, uh, you got other requirements like the humidity factor, then you're going to have to make adjustments, you know, that's why I thought it was perfect up here because I have the red foots, which require high humidity. Again, not wet. Uh, you have, uh, the cherry heads, you have the Chinese box turtles, you know, things of that nature require a lot of humidity and warmth also. Well, it all fits hand in hand. So that right there is a micro environment. You know, the main tree frog room, it, it's 82 during the day and it's 77 at night, but it's got ridiculously high humidity all the time. You know, and there's certain parts of the room that actually are cooler. That's the other thing you got to realize, too, is if you don't, if you, you, you leave spots in the room which are cooler, you can actually have a different species. So that would be your other micro environment. Yeah, that's how I've managed to keep the cooler species. I just, I don't know. I, I don't, I have kind of an aversion to, to hot species. I just, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I've been keeping animals in the basement for as long as I can remember, but. And it's easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's, it's, and you know, the, the, the agreement in the house is that all that stuff <laughs> does not come out of the basement. Um. But, you know, whatever, it, it, it is what it is. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, take advantage of your microclimates. I mean, I mean, I'm able to accommodate some species that like would not do well in other parts of the house just because they like it so cold, like the, you know, the, the mossies. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm actually getting a pair of emerald skinks and, um, I've always been fascinated with them, but somebody I know actually breeds them. Um, and I'm, I'm going to wind up getting a pair of those just so I can kind of work with them and actually get, you know, something new, you know, to kind of to play with. Um, but their environment is very close to the red eyes, you know, where it's like, say, 80 during the day and, you know, mid 70s in the, at night. Humidity being high, but not wet. 
you know, so it's, it's kind of like, they're going to be right next to him, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is if you can make, make it happen with the requirements. Now, a lot of people have to research on what they want to buy. Like, you know, like we've been talking, like, you know, you got to know where they're from, what their requirements are, and if they can fit into the equation, if they can't, well, can't make, you know, can't make the, uh, the environment work for them. You know, I mean, I always suggest people just don't get it. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess that's kind of hard to say out loud and kind of hard to swallow for a lot of people, but it's true. No, you know, it, yeah. it is true. Especially if you're, you're fighting the, you're, you're fighting against the current because I mean, I, one of the things stuff comes up to me and I, I start thinking about it more and more and it did my perception of things and the way I kind of do my my methods it changes it, it evolves as i as i go along and i feel like i kind of have an aversion to species that are that need like like i mean i'm not going to get into uromastics you know what i mean it's just i don't i'm not into like things that need so much supplemental heat because it's just a constant effort to, to keep the temperature raised up and for my the space that i have it's it's hard it's it. hard to do that. So I'm focusing more and more on species that, in general, in general, mm-hmm. prefer, you know, mid seventies to, you know, at the at the high end, low eighties, and then down into the sixties because those are the microclimates that I can a- accommodate given the space that I have now. Exactly. So it's like I I don't want to have a room where I'm going to have species from sixty five all the way up to one hundred and twenty. You know what I mean? That's that's a that's a sixty degree difference that I'm going to have to accommodate. In a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. So I, I, but I mean, you make a really good point that you're not going to want to have species that you just can't. You, know, you can't. You can't keep everything the same in, in room temperature and expect it to to do well. Yeah, and I mean, let's just break it down to this. Every time you get an animal, you're taking on a responsibility, and if you can't take on a responsibility correctly, you probably shouldn't do it. Now, I'm not just saying, I'm not saying it out loud. So people say, well, screw it. I'm not going to get into the hobby. Well, no, it's not that. It's just research what you, what you are interested in. If you can't get it, there's always something else you can find that can fit into your equation. You know, now if you're, I mean, like what your predicament is where you're confined to the basement. Um, there's, there's a lot of people that aren't even, they don't even have that. They're, they're like, you're allowed this space for one tank and that's it. Now you just got to sit there and think about what can survive here, do well, and I'm going to really appreciate it. Yeah, that's the way to go. That's the way to go about it. You know, and, you know, again, I'm not trying to take everybody in and tell them that they shouldn't get animals, but they should get animals that they can take care of. I guess that's, I don't know, I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't know. Very true. Well, Mike, I hate to say it, but we're out of time. We're always out of we're time. We're always this. I know we're we're out of time, and it <laughs> and it breaks my heart, Mike, because I always enjoy talking to you because I feel like we never run out of stuff to talk about. Yes, this is very true. <laughs> this is why I get to get a Bluetooth so I can actually, you know, if you ever decide you want to just give me a shout just to chew the fat or something like that, I can walk around and you know talk to you or whatever. I know, I know, and I I just reckon just before we end, I just remembered something. Um, earlier in the show, I was talking about, um, someone we were, we were talking about how frogs embarrass themselves when they try to solve problems. Um, Marco, it was you. 
Marco King Mog on Instagram, you and I were talking about uh, frogs embarrassing themselves. I totally need to give you a shout out for that because it was funny and it was a funny conversation that we had. <laughs> I yeah. I know I I realize it now. Like later, I hope he wasn't like listening and like God damn it, like I forgot my name. No, no, I I it came to me earlier, and I just I wanted to just recognize you for um, making me laugh. And yeah, that's that. He, and that, that's a good kid right there too. He he really is going to come a long way. Uh, I, I he's taken a lot of species that I wouldn't typically say is good for beginners and done very well with it. So. Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. He's a good kid. He's yeah. he's actually gotten some stuff off me, and it's done fairly well for him. So yeah, yeah. No, he's you know, he's good people. Get more of those people out there to where they get you know the younger crowd where they can get encouraged by this and kind of like I don't want to say contribute, but you know contribute <laughs> um, to you know to the hobby and and he's done that. You know, I mean he's. You know, people have asked, you know, questions on different Facebook. I've seen his responses. They've been pretty, pretty intelligent. So, I mean, he's, he's come a long way with that and uh, hopefully he keeps on going. You know, we need more Steve Irwin's out there too, by the well people. I, I, uh, that's a whole other, I, Mike, <laughs> I think I found something for us to talk about next time we get together. We're going to go, yes. we're going to go, we're going to do a full Steve Irwin um, retrospective. Because uh, I, people either love the man or hate the man, and regardless of whether you love the man, regardless of whether you hate the man, he is responsible for so much of our in current involvement in this world with regards to animals. I, I, I yeah, that and the environment. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, there, there were some people that were environmentalists that actually, I don't want to say the word bitched, but I am going to say it that he was uh horrible for the you know uh we'll say the environment and i said how he talked highly of the environment how important it was to keep it i i just didn't get their thinking but uh but uh yeah you're right that's that's another discussion that we're gonna have to have and that'll that'll be a good some a good talk i know i know that'll be a nice nine hour nine hour episode <laughs> we should get a bunch of people to actually uh, get in on that, like a whole conference call. People. I'll tell you, you know what? That That is something that I want to do for the future because with the, the Tesoro series that I just ran um, was the first series where I had multiple guests on the same show. And I, I was, I was, um, I wanted to make sure everything came out right, you know, that the audio was good. And it worked out, uh, worked out perfectly. I had, um, I had, you know, uh, Ivan from Tesoros, I had Julio Rodriguez on, I had um, Mike Heinrichs, and, um, you know, we, we were able to do multiple guests on the same call. It was pretty cool, so. Um, That's a great character. Yeah, right there. yeah, I, I'd, um, yeah, I, I, we'll have to do that. We'll have to get some sort of a, a panel discussion going, because now that um, uh, I, I'm, I'm confident that I was able to do it, you know, do the whole thing justice, um yeah, that'll be that'll be fun fun thing to look forward to for the the future. See, the podcast is growing. I'm I'm, I'm engaging well, new technology. Yeah, but no, I I mean I, I know I joke around. I I you know I I I'm not always as serious as I should be. But um, when I have someone on the show, I I want to give that person the best audio possible. And you know, regardless of who it is, I want everybody to have a good experience. I want everybody to say, "Hey, look, I'm happy with the way things sounded." sometimes there's things happen beyond my control. Like sometimes I'll have a guest, the guest audio is just not great, but 
um, you know, the whole three-way call, you know, or more, it seems to be working. And I'm sure other podcasters are out there that are laughing at me because they've done, <laughs> they've done it for years and I finally just caught wise, but, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm open to that and maybe we'll do a, we'll do a, um, I don't know. I'll, I'll come up, I'll get down into my lair and I'll come up with something uh, devious for us to talk about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of people that, I mean, they're, they're not just in it. They're mostly in a reptiles, but there are a few people that are like Dave Kaufman, for instance. And, uh, which you probably should try and actually get in contact with him to see if he'll do a podcast with you as well. But he's, he's been all over the world. He's, he's seen a lot of the stuff in, in the wild and, you know, he's, he's very informative on what he, he has noticed. And, um, maybe, maybe one of these days we'll get him and we'll get a group thing with him in there. Cause he, he would actually have a little bit of input as well. That would probably be very beneficial. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, I'm just saying it out loud. But, yeah. I'd have to, um, yeah, I'd have to come up with something that would get different perspectives. I don't know. I got, I gotta, I gotta get in the lab and think about it. Yeah. You know, put it together and, uh, let me know when you're ready. We'll put something together yeah, and, uh, yeah. go with it. Uh, we'll do. We'll do. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, I want to thank Mike for sharing his expertise. And I guess if you're interested in bicolor, I mean, Mike, people can always reach out to you if they see you at an expo or on Facebook, right? If they have any questions, if they're interested in getting involved with bicolor. I mean, as best as I can. I mean, with uh, the schedule that we have and now that we're kind of renovating things and all here, you know, it's going to be a little tough to, to answer everybody's questions, but I'll do my best. All right. So everyone then don't bother Mike. No, no I'm not. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Not I'm like joking. That. I mean, I, I still try to answer like Facebook questions and all that as much as I can. And some of the questions that I get asked that, unfortunately, I will say this out loud. Some of the questions I, I get asked, I can't answer. Uh, so I, I don't want everybody to expect that I'm some frog God or anything like that, but I mean, I can do the best to help you as I can, you know I mean? I'm not a vet either. So if you have, you know, problems with an animal, I mean, if you send me a picture of a, we'll say a red eye tree frog and it's half of its legs missing because it's period away, I'm just going to tell you to put it in the freezer. Uh, there's just no vet on the planet that could save that animal. Um, but you know, as far as, any other questions? I mean, I'll do my best. Like I said, you know, always try to help the community. Always try to, you know, and and as you learn from me or anybody else, always pass it forward, you know, because there's always somebody asking questions, and sometimes there's not that person to answer them. So just try and uh, try and help out if you can. That's all I ask. Always a pleasure. All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Mike for taking some time to talk to us. Um, uh, I almost said Phylobates. Phylomedusa. Phylomedusa bicolor. Um, pretty amazing species. Something that I've been curious about for a long time. And uh, if you guys if out there listening, you're interested in, in picking one up, um, I hope this episode was helpful. And I've got more content like this coming at you soon. So thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll catch up with you again next time.